This is Kaya Drive with Seasway. On Kaya 959. A special kind of show today. Joining the studio by a good friend of the shows and former colleague Kaya Sole. Having a discussion about this current scandal that the president is faced with. And I've got to say, from my observation, every time the president speaks and how he's handled this matter so far has actually worsened it. But you can let us know what your thoughts are. The problem is scenario. Oh, president, I get honest. Let's be honest about that thing. Firstly, he said he will hold his son with his hand. He didn't do that. He always hired around the time. Now, he didn't report this thing. It was reported. Let's leave the value of the money, but... If a crime occurred in president's house, plus in like, why am I report? Why merely cover up your crime? But we we have someone's otilanayena who's an amamoras who's clean corruption who's not clean. But yet again, aye, corruption. Nothing is happening. But still, Melissa believe. And for no second term, what type of crimes now should we expect? And still, umdazangalabusugutena unguramaposa. We don't know. Okay, so that's one voice note. I want to play a second one and then I want to get into this matter. Good afternoon to Kaya and the Kaya listeners. <laughs> For the first time in a long time, we've got somebody who is not being led by the, his plate of food, like the other analysts that are hell-bent on destroying the previous regime by uploading this current regime while we all see that uh, things are falling apart. Quick question, is Mr. Mabuza going to be the next president? From your opinion, Mr. Kaya, thank you. Cheers, bye. Okay, so maybe we can start off with the last question and you can answer that. But before you get to it, uh, the first voice notes brought up the issue of legitimacy, right? Because... Now he's saying we can't trust the president because he's been proven to be a liar. All along, when we thought and felt we could trust the president, he was given leeway and latitude to get away with certain things. At face value, let's discuss just what it looks like, regardless of the man himself. A transaction of this magnitude being cash already raises eyebrows. Not reporting a theft of that magnitude also raises eyebrows. Keeping that kind of money in your house where you have access to the best financial institutions in the world where you could earn interest, for me, it doesn't make any sense if you are a business person because why would you do that unless you have something to hide? Again, it takes me back to this argument I've been saying since 2017. There is something that we do as South Africans and maybe as the media that we keep accusing President Cyril Ramaphosa of being a business person. Mm-hmm. That is an unfounded accusation. President Cyril Maposa is not a person who came up with ideas and converted them into businesses. He became the primary beneficiary of what the ANC thought was the one way in which you could redistribute the economic uh, wealth of the country by setting up these BE structures and all of that. So this is not a man who's going to leave a legacy of saying that I once woke up in a dormitory room, for example, came up with this brilliant idea and converted it into something that then made me a millionaire or changed the fortunes or the lives of people. He's not a business person. He's the literally the, the, the poster boy of how BE has worked. So that's the first thing. So, of course, the reason why that matters is that whenever we then come back and say, but this doesn't sound like what a normal business person would do. Well, it's based on us having accused him of being a business person when he has never actually called himself that. He has literally benefited from the way the, 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 the ANC decided to try and do an economic reorientation program. So that's the first thing. So when we then say that, oh, he's not behaving like a legitimate businessman, 
then I have to ask, well, actually, perhaps you're the ones that are imposing that obligation on him rather than him actually, you know, having organically uh, become a business person of, of, of that magnitude. So that's always the key, the key question there. But of course, you're right in that there has to be a question asked about the president having to keep asking us to give him the moral benefit of the doubt. How many times has he found himself entangled into these things? Because the first question we'd have to ask is that whether you're the president of the country or not, whether you're an esteemed business person or not, a transaction of this nature, given the risks associated with it, given the magnitude of the amounts associated with it, you'd have imagined that any normal person would have executed this much better. So whether it's a matter of reporting it because you've lost millions, whether that's four million or not, you've lost money. Why would you not want to report such a thing? That's the first, that's a key question. And then there's also the reality, the question of why would the president want to remain involved in transactions where if you look at how money laundering operations work, for example, it's very clear that a transaction of this nature that is occurring in parallel to the financial system as we know it, that is essentially a red flag because the question would be, well, come on. These days, if a person is going to buy or sell something for that many millions of dollars, you don't have to withdraw hard currency because there's no benefit to that. If it's an auction season and you win, it's simply a matter of you've got 15 minutes to process the bank transfer and therefore the auction is finalized. So him going back to uh, you know the, the 1980s way of doing things is very, very strange. I would say it's very, very strange. But I wouldn't say it's because he's a poor businessman because I've never regarded him as, as such. Now on that point, on the line we have got Anonymous who is an exchange control expert. Anonymous, good afternoon. Anonymous? Hello. Hi, how's it going? Yes, hi. Sorry, there was a cross in the line there. No worries. Hi, how are you? No, we well. Thank you very much. How are you? All right. Thanks for asking. Okay, so I just wanted to make a quick comment. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I did mention, I, I am in the um, um, exchange control environment. I'm an expert expert. So my comment really is around the currency. And I would just like to address that for a second, please. Mm-hmm. So first of all, um, I'm not sure exactly where this transaction took place or with whom it took place. But I think it's important to address that if the, if the other parties, these buyers, are by any chance as African residents, that already makes the transaction in itself irregular. And that is because, um, you know, as per ex-con regulations and rulings, South African parties cannot transact between each other in foreign currency. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. Secondly, assuming that the other parties to the transaction are by some odd chance non-residents, in a situation where you conclude a transaction with non-residents, obviously preferably it's via SWIFT, and you made a very valid point that for a transaction of this magnitude to take place in cash is already alarming. But if you do accept foreign currency from a non-resident, the dispensation applies to transactions that include travel and tourism businesses that would, of course, include a game lodge or whatever. So if these non-residents then leave you with foreign currency, the rule around there is that you have to then sell that physical currency back to an authorized dealer, that is a bank, by the next business day. So it's business it's, it's, it's different timelines that apply. So if you attain foreign currency for travel purposes, you need to sell it back to your bank within 30 business days. But for locally 
exchange currency where you are running a, a game farm or you receive it from tourists. He should have been declared with his bank, with his authorized dealer, by the next business day, and there are no exceptions to that. And then the final point that I just want to make is, it is concerning that, well, he says, well, it's not this amount, but it's not that amount. The fact of the matter is that the value is also quite significant, and that is because when you submit your currency, there has to be supporting documents that demonstrate the purpose of the exchange of this currency because we need to establish, in a situation where you've sold something to a non-resident, it needs to be established the value that was received in exchange. Was it fair and market-related? So if any South African sells something to a non-resident, we have to establish that you received a fair amount, that it was a, an arm's length transaction, and that the value that you received is to the benefit, uh, positive benefit of South Africa and that it was fair and market-related. So all of those things have actually not even been addressed by the president. And, and, and I suppose yeah, that is really just my my contribution. In summary, the whole transaction in itself, over and above everything else, from a regu- from a sub-regulatory perspective, is just irregular and very concerning. Thank you very much for that, Anonymous. I think I recognize that voice, but I'm not going to put you on blast. Uh, but Anonymous raises very fair points about the counterparty, Jobe, and I want us to get into that. Uh, upon our return we would go back to music if we had more time but i figure time is of the essence so let's rather get back to the conversation join in studio by good friend of the shows uh Kais Tole. uh before we went to traffic and then took the ad break we had anonymous who called in and spoke about how exchange is controlled in the country for a reason anonymous also spoke about counterparties it does become a pertinent matcher whom you transact with using a foreign currency because Depending on whether or not that person is a South African citizen or a resident, uh, then it could be legal or illegal. Yeah, and I think obviously the key problem here is that, again, until the president gives us indication of what the transaction flow was and who the involved parties were, a lot of it is going to be speculation. But the key question here is that you can imagine the number of people that would have been involved in that particular <clears throat> game farm transaction and for any of them to have withdrawn amounts in hard currency foreign hard currency of that particular level that should have been alerted or flagged within the financial system in one way or another so until we know who the counterpart is on it's obviously quite tricky to imagine what exactly was happening and i think also obviously the rules that have been created are, are there with a very particular purpose to ensure that only regulated intermediaries are dealing in foreign currency because you can imagine Caesar, if a country like south africa then gets flooded with unmonitored levels of foreign currency it has some significant implications for the country's currency value and the balance of payments and and similar things like that. So there's a reason these rules exist. Again, you would imagine that a person who is a president of a country, a person who has been on the boards of multinational companies, of listed entities, would understand why these rules exist and would be keen to comply with them first and foremost, and for him to then find himself actually having the money in the house or the farm and for the money to get stolen, you literally have to question the the quality of the advice that the president gets in his inner circle because this is not the first time he gets himself entangled in a matter of this nature. Luckily for him, it's not the public protector that discovered it this time. But more than that, a crime that involves US dollar currency becomes a federal crime. 
Yes, and you would have thought that over the past week in particular, the president would have been acutely aware of that because remember Glencore, the company that he himself was entangled with because he um, and Glencore shared Optimum coal mine for a very long time. They have had to pay fines in the United States, not for the bribes and the corruption they conducted in the United States, but for the bribes and the corruption that they conducted using United States currency. Yes, so it what was in does, Brazil, it was in the DRC, yeah. nowhere on for on, on US soil yeah. but using US currency it becomes a it federal gives them crime. that jurisdiction so yes. it gives them that universal jurisdiction so even in a, in, in a case like this Obviously, it may well have been that somebody in the United States becomes aware that, well, actually, something was happening involving foreign currency, and they may follow up on this. Now, obviously, we do not know whether there was any illicit activities being undertaken there. But for a president to put himself even in that corner where those now become the questions we have to ask and the speculation that we have to engage in, it is remarkably reckless of the president, I must say. Well, the theft in itself was a crime, and what was stolen is dollars. So I'd imagine those two parameters are met. Look, if money gets stolen from you, you'd be keen to report it. So perhaps we are underestimating how wealthy the president is because if $4 million or $3 million is, is the a drop of in the that ocean you, that you are, you, you are you're happy to <laughs> let slide. Look, yeah, clearly we are not in that same pay grade. So it's just quite tricky to imagine how he reasoned that this would make sense, who he consulted and what advice he would have received in relation to this because first and foremost, principles must matter. The fact that he presides over what he wants us to believe is a law-abiding country means that when somebody steals four million US dollars, that is something that ought to be reported, regardless of how wealthy or how poor the person whose money was stolen was. So you would have thought that he'd be the guiding light for the country at large on this is how you must follow up on these things, this is how you must deal with these particular issues. And for him to now be ducking and diving, refusing to even give us the actual explanation of what happened and thinking that the crux of his argument is to simply say four million is not the answer and that's the end of the story. It is remarkably poor judgment that he continues to exercise. Now, speaking of the diplomatic ties, when we come back, we're going to speak about something else we've heard regarding this matter and that involves Namibia. Uh, there's a lot to cover. Thank you very much for sticking around with us. This news bulletin is brought to you in partnership with Sasco. Taste the care. And so, welcome back to the show. If you're still with us, we joined in studio by a good friend of the show's, Kaya Sole, having a discussion regarding the presidential scandal uh, that has ensued over the last, let's call it just a week or so. It keeps unraveling. We keep finding out more and more information. Yesterday, Emma Bungane wrote an article which then gave us even more clues uh, regarding this matter. It would appear that one of the robbers, or at least somebody who was involved, then fled the country and went to Namibia. They were apprehended in Namibia. Namibian authorities did want to open up a case, and through some form of interference, we understand, again, the president or somebody in the president's office made that case disappear. This is from an independent source other than Arthur Fraser. So whether or not you believe it is up to you. But from what I've known, I'm a Bungane, a credible source. Yeah, and I think also there is a, a Namibian source that we've also been able to read into. The Namibian, it's a newspaper. And they've said the Prosecutor General Martha Imalwa says that South African officials have since 2020 refused to provide information about the robbery at the president's farm. And she says she can't force them. And literally, that's where it, the matter has uh, stalled. You have to then imagine what it would take for anyone to be able to stall a legal process in a foreign country. Because Mm -hmm. the first question that the president is going to have to somehow 
explain is how did the Namibian authorities become aware that that particular individual had been involved in this particular robbery because it looks like everyone in South Africa missed the story and yet in Namibia they were fully alert that something had happened Mm. and then when they then said okay if it is a robbery then this is what we must do to hold this person accountable that then seems to have uh, been killed off at high political diplomatic levels where somebody saw thought it was the best way to actually ensure that the matter never proceeded again it becomes impossible for the president to keep distancing himself from this because you'd have to ask who are the individuals that have sufficient either political or clout or influence to be able to actually get processes of this nature to to be conducted in the way that they've been conducted. And I think the president's um, go-to line, which is to say, it wasn't me, it was someone who was doing it without my knowledge. I don't think it can fly in this particular instances because remember, um, the the landing of the Gupta jet at Vatakliov, then you eventually found Bruce Koloane was the main man that then said, no, I did this out of my own uh, volition. Mm-hmm. In a case like this, it would be difficult to imagine that people around the president executed all these steps without his knowledge in order to obviously help him out. But guess what? That's how the president explained himself in the CR17 bank statements conversation to say, there are people around me who execute everything without notifying me, without alerting me. So therefore, in something goes wrong, I cannot actually be, be, be asked to account for something that has gone wrong there. I just think that we can't have a president who keeps giving us that same response when clearly things are done with him as the only beneficiary. I mean, he's the only person that benefits from whatever happens at his game farm, whether it's $4 million or however million dollars they are. It's just difficult to imagine how so many things keep happening to him coincidentally or accidentally, and he never knows enough about the things that are being executed, and he wants us to keep giving him this moral benefit of the doubt. And so then this brings us to the credibility issue, right? Because on the one hand, as you correctly point out, either the president is aware of what is happening and is part of the cover-up, or the president is unaware of what is happening, in which case I'd ask you then, why do you have faith in such a president? If his answer is going to be that he's unaware, then you have to worry about the ability for him to be aware of anything. Because literally, he would have known that I did this game auction or whatever, he structured his that, and then something happened. Mm. Something went wrong. The money was stolen. So he can't possibly claim to be unaware of that. I, I'd imagine that whether there's a blind trust in place or whether there's a chief of staff or whatever the case might be, this is a sub type of thing that you alert the ultimate beneficiary to say, oh, by the way, there's been a loss of a million dollar or two. So you would have mm. had to alert him. So now the problem here is that if he then keeps giving us these half-hearted explanations, he's actually eroding what little remains of his own credibility because you'd have to say well he's either a president who's remarkably naive enough not to know things like this things of this scale are happening around him and being executed around him which is a problem in its own or it is a person who is clearly being very economical with the truth because it is just not plausible that so many things keep happening around him and he never becomes aware of them and as soon as big money transfers are involved then these entanglements keep popping up so we know for a fact now that treasury is investigating this matter South African Revenue Service is also investigating this matter. Ordinarily, when a person is being investigated, they are usually removed from their position because you do not want that person either interfering with the investigation or tampering with evidence that could lead to the case being resolved. Here, we've seen nobody being suspended. Not the head of security, whom 
we, we understand, would have been involved in holding a person against their will for two days at the very least, right? Uh, and obviously nobody in the president's office, including the president himself or any other ministers who serve under the president in his cabinet. Is that normal or is that irregular? It shouldn't be normal, but unfortunately, the way political processes work isn't always as linear as we'd like it to be. I think we can define what a judicial process ought to do, and of course, if people do their job, then everything is quite linear there. In political conversations, what the ANC would have to deliberate on is to say, well, actually, the step-aside clause, for example, was never meant to be universal. So if you and I get arrested for, I don't know, um, and, and we're ANC leaders and we get you know implicated in something minor, that's not the type of thing that then activates a step-aside clause, for example. The key question here is that the ANC itself has always struggled to identify the spectrum of issues, the spectrum of incidences that are so grievous in nature that you actually want that person to step aside first and foremost. So if, for example, people wanted then to go to an NEC meeting and say, no, the president has been implicated in something, he must step aside. Then actually the definition of, well, what exactly has he done? Because he'll turn around and say, I was a victim of a theft. I was so ashamed I didn't want to tell anyone. So suddenly it sounds like he is a man who is innocent of anything. And then, of course, the question will be, well, actually, if you want to entangle him on the basis of him being a victim of something, well, then look around at other ANC leaders. Then suddenly the entire house of cards falls apart because then what do you do about Duduzi Manana, for example, who actually has convictions for assault? And I think he stole a coke at some point in time and he remains an NEC member. So suddenly what that will do is that it will blow up the ANC's own understanding of how to manage political processes. And remember, we must always acknowledge the fact that political processes are not as linear as logic. They're not as linear as judicial processes. So every single political party is within its, within its rights to decide how it wants to run its affairs. And of course, the ANC has taken a particular view. The fact that it has so many unintended consequences is that great dilemma. When we return, I ask the question, is it now not time perhaps that we paint the president with the same brush we paint all other ANC members? It is indeed his ANC. He is at the helm of it. It's Kaya Drive. Welcome back to Kaya Drive. Uh, if you just joined us, well, the show's about to end in 14 minutes. We joined in the studio by a good friend of the show's, Kaya Stoyle, having a discussion regarding the presidential scandal uh, involving President Cyril Ramaphosa. Joe, let's perhaps speak about the succession in the ANC now, right? We had a voice note earlier on, somebody asking you if you think Didi Mabuza, deputy president, is next in line. What are your thoughts? Well... He is next in line. He is the deputy president of the of the country, and of course, the delegates in Nasrik decided that that's the way that they wanted to go. I think obviously the key issue is always going to be until the ANC actually um, activates um, Zuma's uh, last hour recommendations. If you remember, one of the very last things that President Zuma actually recommended to the ANC um, ahead of Nasrik was the fact that they needed to be able to separate the election of the president from the election of the other party positions because what seems to have been the problem is that now you have to go in with a slate. So mm -hmm. it may well turn out that you want Caesar to be your president and someone else to be a deputy president, all that, and then you have to it as a slate. So his recommendation in Nasrik is that let's have a standalone election for the president of the, of, of the party and then the after elections for the other positions. And the merits of that is that it will obviously 
probably would have abolished the current slate uh, approach that the ANC has, which is the big problem here. So sometimes there's a bitter pill to swallow that yes. gets hidden in a slate. So now in the Mabuza question, Mabuza has to toss a coin sometime between now and December and decide whether he wants to run for the party presidency, in which case he creates a standalone slate on his own, or if he's comfortable with the status quo. If he's comfortable with the status quo, it gives him a much better chance at a natural succession in five years' time because everybody's going to cite ANC traditions, blah, blah, blah. The deputy president must be the president, as Gwede Mantashe famously said. So his best chance of ensuring that he gets the job is to bide his time, like Ramaphosa did under the Jacob Zuma administration. So that's the easiest way. Mm-hmm. He could, of course, pull a Halima in Mangawung, but of course, most people who remember in Mangawung, even on the day of the election, we didn't know whether Halima was running or not because he was just so confused about what he wanted to do. So, of course, you could, in the end of the first term, then say, I believe that that the, the succession should be, you know, accelerated now, and then I want to run as the president. So then that's what Mabuza would try. If he did do that, he's definitely going to lose this December. Now, the rapper in me has to use this line. There is a way, if, for example, the president were to be hit by a step-aside rule, there is a way that the president could sidestep the step-aside, right? Uh, in this country, you can run as an independent. And according to your own admission and the ANC's admission, he is the most popular politician they have currently. I maybe could see a situation where he'd walk away with a significant amount of votes without needing the ANC's approval or without having to win any conference. (laughs) Yes. So in theory, you can run as an independent candidate in a country. And of course, if you are able um, to amass enough uh, political support, you'll be able to get in there. The problem with South Africa's uh, 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 you know, electoral system, unfortunately, is that you as citizens do not actually appoint a president. What you do is that you endorse particular political parties. And once those political parties are assembled in the National Assembly, the 400 of them then decide who to pick. So the reality here is that even if he said he wants to run as an independent, that may win him votes, but it cannot make him the president until we change what happens in parliament. So what you then have to do is to do two things. Yes, you can run as an independent. And yes, there may be enough people out in the country that actually, you know, um, support you. And in fact, I think according to the calculations that Dr. Stembilembete in particular used to do, you probably need about 40 or 45,000 votes in order to get a seat in parliament. Mm. And that's the first goal. Can you get 45,000 people to vote for you? Yes, that makes you a member of the National Assembly, one out of the 400. And then your biggest battle will be then to find 201 people within the National Assembly who are then going to endorse you. So of course, if you go as an independent and the ANC has some who runs as their party, uh, as their party leader, then of course you can never be president. So it would be a matter of that independence um, uh, that, that he seeks, even if he was running as an independent. I cannot see it getting him into the union buildings because the ANC caucus are still the ones that decide who the president is until we get to 2024. Okay, let's take some voice notes. Sizwe Drive and Kastualu Jobe. Firstly, kudos to you for having such a conversation during this slot because usually these type of conversations are held after 7 p.m after 8 p.m so big up for me i think the president shouldn't comment anymore on this him commenting on the issue is just putting a whole lot of doubts in our minds we already have a lot of questions so for now he must just keep quiet and let his team run and speak on his behalf and do all the investigations and all of that and i know i honestly think this is not the first one some will still come like in the near future like after july and so before december there will be more revelations more scandal so we're just going to sit and watch the anc play 
the game there will be a whole lot of debt being revealed from all the corners so yeah look i agree with him i do not think this is the end of it um and he raised another point about is it not time that perhaps the nc takes a look at how they head into elections because this scorched earth policy of theirs where they fight literally to the death destroys the credibility of the party and in turn whomever uh the candidate that emerges they end up being marred with controversy as well yeah starts way back in stellenbosch in 2002 how Tabum Begi was able to score a second term because suddenly all the candidates that could have, you know, um, challenged him there, then suddenly found that, yeah, there were documents being released that essentially torpedoed their prospects. So they never stood in that particular uh, in, in that particular election. And I think given the nature of contestation that we've seen, probably that escalated in Pulukwane in 2007, the ANC would have to sit down and take the view that we need to do things differently because unfortunately they do literally kill each other on the way to that particular conference. And I think the problem here is that by the time you win the presidency of the party, the damage that's been done to the party at large is something that will eventually then become your problem. Because if you then look at the transition from the Zuma to the Ramaphosa administration, remarkably damaging for the ANC. And then thereafter, it became a matter of people looking hungry for an alternative. But until we have proper opposition parties in South Africa that know how to actually unseat an incumbent government, then we do have this paralysis where people have sense of frustrations with the ANC, but the ANC keeps emerging in the ballot paper because unfortunately, the alternatives just haven't been able to put together a proper explanation to the electorate of why they should be voted into power. Mm. Anonymous. Hi, how are you? We well, thank you. Thank you very much for holding. I'm well, thanks. Um, Cesar, my two cents, right, contribution from a normal person, right? As a normal employee, right, we expect it to be known that uh, if you get a gift, you're supposed to declare it for tax purposes. And, well, the normal tax as well, you know, for your revenue. So I find it strange that the president would actually want to have a cash transaction of that kind of uh, amount of money, despite it being dollars or rents or whatever that he thinks that is not significant in his home being processed and not having to have any trade. So I just need to find out, is that not tax evasion? Because now you're getting money from performing this transaction. SARS doesn't know about it. Nobody knows about it up until somebody goes and digs behind your back and we find out about this. Well, it's important to note, we don't know yet whether or not SARS knows about this. Um, the assumption is that they don't because it is large sums of money and naturally, if he had declared them, they would have raised red flags. So the fact that no record has come up so far, that's the assumption. We don't know yet. We're still waiting for that information. SARS is investigating the matter. But yes, indeed, because it has been two years, at the very least, one financial year has passed. That money should have been declared a long time ago. Sorry uh, for interjecting, but that is my concern. The financial year end has already gone by. It was assessed for the last year and we into the second year. And it's only now that whoever went digging found out the information. So had the person not gone and went to dig, would he still say something or would he still be quiet about this whole issue? And that's a good question because now it speaks to the matter of credibility and trust because it will become a he said, she said, unless... Frazier can put forward some evidence, or anybody else for that matter, can put forward some evidence that points to the contrary. 
And so then, Jobe, here is my question to close off because we will eventually have to end the show. All along, people have spoken about the ANC as a corrupt party, but as President Sula Ramaphosa as, I guess, the clean one, right? The Renaissance man. Does that view still hold in light of what we've heard so far uh, and everything that we've mentioned over the last two hours? The problem with that view is that, unfortunately, he has literally defined his legacy as the ANC president on keeping the ANC united. Mm -hmm. And in the definition of unity, it's literally been a question of needing to get into bed with the kleptocrats and all the people that have made, that have dented the image of the ANC out there. So, of course, the problem... This is, of course, I've got to interject. This is, of course, assuming that he wasn't part of that, even though he was part of that administration for years. Yeah. Remember, he was introduced to us as the great antidote of what the party was all about. So the big problem there is that for a lot of people, that's been a bit of a tricky one in that if you are acknowledging that there are corrupt elements and you are cleaning or sweeping up, surely your primary fixation should not be on keeping those parts united. Because the issue here is that, well... If you felt that there was some element of corruption that needed to be weeded out, how do you balance that between actually doing that, that weeding out of corruption, however you define it, and then also meeting that other dimension that you've set for yourself of keeping the party united? And I think he's struggled in actually telling us exactly what the parameters are and what he's willing to do or not do in order to actually execute on that dual mandate. So, of course, if you felt that people thought that there were corrupt elements, you then saying, I'm in bed with them because it's more important to keep the ANC united, then that's a lot of people to think, well, actually, what's the point? Because will you ever be able to take the decisive steps that are necessary in order to weed out those corrupt elements? And because then that becomes a matter of political purging, which is another thing that you try to avoid, at least in your first term as an ANC president, because it will come back to bite you. So I don't think he's mastered it. I don't think he's got it right in the past five years of, of, of his ANC presidency, getting those ju- the dual mandate of keeping them united and then cleaning them out. So... Is that even possible? I mean, to use a money laundering analogy, if you've got good money and some bad money comes in contact with good money, all of that is then regarded as bad money. Just like if you've got good individuals and good individuals then come into contact with bad individuals, the group is called a bad group. Yeah. It's a, it's an unavoidable fact that there may well be a lot of wonderful things that happen within the ANC. There may well be a lot of wonderful people within the ANC. Now, of course, the things that aggrieve society the most are the things that get done by the bad people, as it were. So then the question is, do you have a very clear structure of actually creating that distinction and more importantly making society aware of what exactly happens within the party because the story that breaks will say that an ANC leader did this or that suddenly it's an ANC problem it's never a matter of well it's an individual because when we talk about public resources for example well it was the ANC that put them in a position to be able to dip their hand into the cookie jar so the ANC cannot disengage themselves from the consequence of the people that it has put into um, a public uh, it has given access to public resources so it's it, it's it's quite simply impossible. I don't imagine it's possible for you to be able to say that, oh, uh, th- there's a blend of the good and the bad. And because I'm trying to keep everyone united, it's better for us to try and reform the bad people. The bad people are probably beyond reform in most cases. His predecessor was no stranger to controversy. But whenever he faced a situation like this, because of the numbers that he had within the ANC, the ANC would close rank. Do you see the ANC doing this for this current president? They will. I don't think they can take on the gamble of trying to uh, create internal 
political party chaos at a point in time where with every single uh, local government election and with every single national election, you can clearly see that many more alternatives are emerging out there and the ANC's grip on electoral power is not as strong as it used to be. So I do not believe that they've got the political latitude to engage in another um, internal civil war, particularly involving the president himself, because you can imagine this is a party that currently doesn't have a secretary general or a deputy secretary general. For them to then be in a position, however remote it might be, to lose their president based on a political question, I don't think it's something that they'll be ready to countenance. It becomes very different if the process is taken away from them. So if there's a judicial process that gets initiated and gets implemented, then the ANC cannot control that. But I think on a political level, it will be suicidal for them to actually initiate their own chaos because they've seen how bad it can be. Thank you very much for joining us. That's how we wrap up the show. Kaya Drive ends right now. This is Kaya Drive with Seaswear. On Kaya.